Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Michael Patrick McDonald joins us now. He is the author of a number of books, including the American Book Award-winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, and also Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. And he's been serving as a special correspondent on the show, covering events in the divided island of Ireland and its relations with the UK, which has become a major concern, uh, especially now in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Michael, welcome back to our show. Hey, great to hear your voice. And the same here. Same here. Um, I assume (laughs) a major issue is the border that separates the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. How different are the approaches? Excuse me. I'm getting all choked up about this. How different are the approaches to the pandemic coming from Dublin and London, and and is Northern Ireland following the same uh, agenda as uh, the rest of, of the UK, or does it have its own? Well, um, I, I'll just I'll I've gone over some of the politics um, on your show in the past. So I'll just recap some of it just to remind people that. Um, um, well, first of all, I think we know we're talking about an island, and it's it's a pretty small population compared to the, the UK. It's you know it's um, on the island of Ireland, it's about uh, 6.6 million people. Um, the UK is 65 million or, or so. And um, the island of Ireland was, of course, colonized by Britain. Um, the six counties of the north um, with a population of 1.8 million people, again, kind of small population, um, is still under British rule. It's still part of the United Kingdom, while the, while the 26 counties of the South are um, called the Republic of Ireland. And there are, you know, the whole history, of course, of um, nationalist Republicans um, who would be mainly of, uh, of a Catholic identity in the North, um, as well as island-wide nationalist Republicans who have sought a, a you know, United Ireland, a United Irish Republic um, that's, you know, not under a British monarchy and um, is independent and sovereign. So just to remind of all that, but so to this day on this very small island with a pretty small population, um, you have a border uh, that separates six counties of the north from 26 counties in the south. Uh, the six counties in the north are a British jurisdiction, and of course this has, um, well, this has been a problem on a, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons over the years, but, um, but now with this virus that, of course, uh, knows no borders, as, as people have said, um, it's especially a problem because um, the unionist population in the north, so in the six counties of the north, the unionist population, they would be uh, people often referred to as the Protestants because people often think of this mistakenly as a Catholic-Protestant conflict. But the Protestant-identified, British-identified unionist population of the north have historically been in control and in recent years um, there's, there have been attempts at a shared future with the Catholic Nationalist Republican community. The both communities now are about 50-50 in terms of numbers um, in that population of 1.8 million. The Unionist British identified population of, of the North is, of course, really insistent about being British and really insistent about being in line with um, policy coming from London and definitely not being in line with anything coming from Dublin. Well, um, the big problem with that is that um, Dublin went um, on lockdown. The Republic
Republic of Ireland, the 26th County Republic of Ireland, went on lockdown, um, falling in line with international best practices, engaging in testing and contact tracing, introducing social distancing, and lockdown very early and quickly. Um, whereas I think a lot of people know that the United Kingdom was pretty late, like us um, in the United States, and um, and you know probably for a lot of the same reasons, uh, not wanting to um, disrupt um, you know the the economy. Uh, of course, the United Kingdom, most people know, is led by someone who would be of similar political thinking uh, as Donald Trump. But he got. So, but then uh, he came down. But then he came down with coronavirus. So right. now he seems to have changed his tune. He now totally that he's just back, out. and he he just returned to to uh, his office yesterday. Right, and he he um he did have a very different um tune from weeks ago, where he was probably more in line with Donald Trump in terms of um, not taking this seriously and not doing a lockdown and so forth. And now he, since he got coronavirus, and I think he had a pretty severe case of it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think they, you know, they didn't give a lot of the details of of his hospitalization, but he was definitely in the ICU. So he had a very serious. We all know that there are very different degrees of uh, manifestation with this virus, and he got one of the better, one of the worst ones. Sorry. And he, um, and so he's changed. To, you know, so he's talking about putting off reopening. Um, he actually sounds a little bit more rational. Um, well. And Donald Trump um, about the reopening. But let's see where that goes, because, of course, even though he was sick and he knows this is a very serious and contagious virus, um, he is still first and foremost, uh, you know, very right wing economically. And, and as, as his memory fades of what that virus was like and as his interest in opening the economy is in line with the likes of Trump, um, he could also change his tune again. I mean, they both but they, you know, they, they, we don't know what they're going to say next minute to minute, right? So, um, but the impact on the island of Ireland, uh, uh, given that there's a border and given that the, the, the north, the northern six counties are under UK jurisdiction and that the northern six counties, that part of the leadership of the nor northern six counties is very obsessed with being British and not Irish and, um, and not taking any uh, advice uh, from Dublin um, as a result uh, you know, they, there was a different response, uh, two-week late lockdown, um, arguments over um, not doing, you know, not wanting to do what they're doing down in the South, in Dublin. And so as a result, their, um, their death rate is much higher from the coronavirus. So would you describe the situation as being similar to uh, two states with different policies in this country, like Illinois and Missouri, where there's a lot of interstate movement? You know, I was thinking of that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, um, um, I mean, it, there's this there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, I, I, and I think that um, one of the things happening here too is this um, well, this obsession with borders now down to the state level, right? Um, and well, and in Missouri and Illinois, you have people from uh, Illinois going working in St. Louis uh, and then going right. back home to Illinois. Yeah, right down the road, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the same situation, same exact situation in the north. Um, I'll remind people, too, I, uh, that the, so there was a really what we would call a hard border uh, throughout the conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles, 
um, a hard border, meaning that it was uh, manned by British military um, all along this border between the north of Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland uh, from you know the um, early 70s through um, well the early 2000s really. But 1998, there was a, a good, the Good Friday Agreement with a peace accord. Um, which uh, part of which uh, was about the demilitarization of the place, and um, that took a while. I mean, the place is still, you know, it, it's still very much MI5 um, controlled. A lot of people would say, but um, but the, the the soldiers were gone, and so since the Good Friday Agreement, it's become a kind of what we would call a soft border. People, you wouldn't know that you crossed the border, except that the money might be different. In the north of Ireland, the money would be the British um, sterling, and in the south, it would be on the euro. Um, all of this also uh, caused some trouble with Brexit, because how do you, you know, did, it, did that mean bringing back a hard border? Um, it didn't, at the end of the day, meaning, mean bringing back a hard border. Um, Boris kind of through the, uh, thankfully, through the, the unionist, um, loyalist, Protestant uh, population of the North under the bus in terms of their desire to bring back kind of a hard border that strongly separates the, uh, the six counties of the North from Ireland, from the Republic of Ireland, even though it's on the island of Ireland. Um, so it didn't bring back a hard border, but what was interesting in the conversations uh, when the virus hit was that there were calls um, from what's a very conservative uh, population, the very, especially the leadership of the, the loyalist unionist population um, in the north, a call, a call for a return um, of soldiers uh, to the north, well, but, but basically as a kind of humanitarian mission. Um, there was immediately re immediate resistance to that, of course, island-wide, really, um, from from a lot of people in the south, as well as from the Catholic Nationalist Republican population in the north, um, no return of soldiers for any reasons. There are other ways to to go about some of the uh, humanitarian work that we need to do. Um, another really interesting thing for me, watching uh, the response over there, um, because of the troubles, I feel like, um, well, particularly in the Catholic, Irish-identified, nationalist, Republican community. Because that community, what, you know, they were essentially second-class citizens for a long time. They were um, out in the cold. Um, they, would, they were gerrymandered out of power for years. As a result, they always have had a strong sense of kind of DIY community spirit. Community building is huge. Um, they're, you know, it, the, the kind of grassroots DIY ethos is really strong in those communities. And one of the things I've witnessed um, in response to the coronavirus is um, how that has benefited um, a lot of communities at the very local level who are doing what people in this country in the U.S. are often referring to as mutual aid and solidarity efforts, um, which I've, I, I feel like they've done in those communities um, for years and years. I think a lot of oppressed and marginalized communities um, throughout the world have to find, um, have to build strong networks of mutual aid and solidarity. And that's something that I'm seeing really strongly in those Catholic nationalist Republican communities, even post Good Friday Agreement, when they're, when there's supposedly parity of esteem and, and, um, and equality, you know, there's still a long way to go on aspects of equality, but um, even, but, you know, they've come a long way, but even in this period, 
um, post-peace process, a lot of that culture, that kind of DIY mutual aid culture exists. So in the absence of government, which we, you know, we, we're seeing here, of course, anybody under, um, you know, in the British jurisdiction has often has also been seeing that, um, especially a lot like us, I'd say. Um, so anybody in that kind of a situation where government is absent, um, not to get let government off the hook, but uh, but but we certain communities know how to do this stuff, um, at least know how to kind of take care of each other and even organize to call upon government to do its job as well. So that's but, a really interesting uh, parallel to see as, as well, because I see that here in the United States in uh, poor and marginalized communities. But well. but in, in, in the Republic of Ireland, the border co counties, County Cavan uh, has the highest incidence of COVID-19 in the Republic uh, and the, uh, the number of cases in some of the other border counties, uh, County Monaghan, County Loth, uh, have yeah. also been rising. Uh, Cavan has uh, overtaken Dublin uh, uh, as the county with the highest incidence of the disease. You would ima imagine Dublin, with the density of population, uh, would still be number one. Right. So is and, really and the border effect here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, and that's that's been true economically for years. Um, throughout the Troubles and since the Troubles, the border counties of the South so that would include uh, Cavan, Monaghan, um, definitely Donegal, which would probably be the most locked out of any success the Republic of Ireland has had in recent years economically. Um, those border counties, because they're so close to the border, they've often been neglected and they, they didn't benefit from, you know, one, one thing Ireland could always count on was tourism, especially from America and especially from Irish Americans. And a lot of people, because they perceived, um, they still perceive the North to be a place where there's a war raging, which, you know, is not true, um, at least not a, a military war. But, um, but they've avoided any, you know, the border areas as well. Some border areas are like Donegal's completely cut off from the rest of the Republic of Ireland because there's only a, a narrow bottleneck to get, you know, the, of, of travel between um, Donegal and the rest of the, the, the Republic of Ireland. But yeah, I'd say that's the border effect. Um, it's the same, you know, the same in the same way that the border effect has caused economic deprivation over the years. Um, it's also uh, seeing very unequal manifestation of the coronavirus impact. Um, and you know, again, similar to uh, in the same way that in this country, a lot of inequality is being, you know, that you know, a lot of people have known about for a long time, but it's being laid bare, I think, in, in really stark ways. And and you've seen that there as well. Um, and, of course, the other thing is that the populations um, in Ireland uh, that would be disproportionately impacted will, will also be working class and poor. Um, it wouldn't be as racialized as it is here because um, there's, there's, there's not a, as much diversity uh, in you know, Ireland historically didn't colonize anyone, doesn't have a lot of diversity there. But um, but the immigrant worker population uh, that are often uh, Polish, Romanian, Bulgarian, um, sometimes uh, Nigerian, Asian, that those populations that often live in crowded conditions, they're also seeing um, disproportionate rates of coronavirus and death. My guest is Michael Patrick McDonald. 
this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. It's been suggested that the demographics of age differences in the UK and Ireland may have played a part in the death rate. See, in the UK, 18% of the population is aged 65% or 65 years or older. In Ireland, it's just 13%. But, but the, there's a surprise in the fact that Republic of Ireland was much quicker and more decisive, even though its population is less at risk than the very crowded and urban mainland UK. The UK is, 80, is 83% urban, and Ireland is 63% urban. Mm. And I, I, I think, you know, with a lot of... I, the Republic of Ireland these days um, just seems like a really smart place. I mean, I, I, it's, it's really... I mean, I've been super aware of it just course, because I live in Trump's America now, and, and I'm always looking at it and saying, oh, my God, this is so different. Um, but, um, and it's so different also from, you know, Boris's um, UK. They, you know, it's, it's become a really progressive place. We've talked about this on the year before, ever since the, 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 the end of the church, the Catholic Church ascendancy over the, over the place. And, and then um, Sinn Féin did very well in the last elections. Yeah, and Sinn Féin, which would be more um, left than the other two parties, but even the conservative Fine Gael, um, and we've talked about this on the show, the conservative Fine Gael party, which has been in power for a while now, they would be conservative, but they would be more, you know, they would be like, um, well, they'd be like our conservative Democrats. They'd be uh, economically conservative and uh, socially liberal, the, the head of Fine Gael, the current Taoiseach, or um, basically the, the prime what might be seen as the prime minister of Ireland, uh, Leo Varadkar is um, of Indian descent. He's also gay and out. And um, Ireland was the first country in the world to vote, the Republic of Ireland, first country in the world to vote um, for marriage equality, as opposed to having to rely on the courts. Um, and uh, also the recent vote around um, choice was a, a huge victory for, for the choice side. So it's a pretty progressive place, but also, um, you know, just common sense. Like there's, there's not really a whole, you know how we're seeing um, a lot of resistance to, uh, you know, to, well, to the, to the reality of the coronavirus. There's a lot of uh, protests happening in this country um, about, you know, where the red states, of course, want to reopen and, and so forth and calling it a hoax. You don't see a lot of that in Ireland. There's a tiny um, kind of uh, right wing libertarian movement there, but it's really small. And they've been you know, having tiny protests here and there. Um, in the north, the conservative population would be uh, would tend to be more unionist and loyalist, pro-British and British identified. Um, and they might be leaning toward questioning um, lockdowns and wanting to reopen and so forth. Um, but in the Republic of Ireland, that kind of, uh, that kind of thinking is, would be really, really um, a small population, tiny population. And I don't know what that is. I think, again, a, a small an island, for one thing, I think that's to its benefit. I think the fact that it's a, um, a relatively small country um, is to its benefit. Um, the conversations that um, you hear in cosmopolitan, modern, very, very modern Dublin um, are really the same conversations I hear in the very rural west of Ireland, which is you know, two, two hours away. So I don't know if that 
that, you know, that plays a big part. But um, an interesting thing right now is that the current Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, um, who again... He, he the, he, he's, a, he's a Taoiseach. That means prime minister? T-A-O-I-S-E-A-C-H? Yep. It, 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 does, it means chieftain, actually. Literally, it would mean chieftain. So it's going back. It's a Gaelic word. And when Ireland, when the Republic of Ireland, the 26 counties, got its independence from the United Kingdom... Um, after rising up in the early 20th century, um, they went to a lot of those um, those titles. Uh, so Taoiseach is Gaelic for chieftain, and it would be the equivalent to uh, Boris, uh, prime minister, or the prime minister in, in the United Kingdom. So and there's a president be, who there's a president yeah. who has very little power. Yeah, the, well, the president um, has huge cultural power internationally and locally, and um, the current president, Michael D. Higgins, is pretty incredible. Um, he's from the Irish Labor Party. Um, he would be the more pro- the more left progressive wing of the Labor Party, because we all know that, you know, Labor parties like Tony Blair can become pretty neoliberal and so forth. But um, he is, um, he's a pretty incredible leader. He, they're voted in, the president is voted for being, um, being a republic. Uh, they, they went for the president thing. And um, he's elected and, uh, or she is elected. Mary Robinson is probably one of the most famous, uh, presidents of mm-hmm. Ireland. Um, and, uh, he is kind of a figurehead in a way. Um, some people compare it to the queen of England. I don't like to compare it really in that way because it's very different in that he's a citizen. He's an ordinary citizen that you might see walking down the street or getting on the bus or something. You know, I, I've seen him in the streets in Dublin and so forth. But he's a citizen no better than anyone else. And this this president happens to be very intellectual and very moral and righteous and incredible. Do you think that this uh, will actually lead to more cooperation? For example, uh, Leo Varadkar, the the Taoiseach, uh, uh, talked to Boris Johnson, and uh, he says that Johnson... um, uh, He said that, that in many ways we are one... Uh, epidemiological unit, uh, and uh, they, they agreed that they should try uh, to coordinate measures as much as possible, north and south. So might this in some ways soften the uh, the break because uh, that Brexit has uh, has so exacerbated? Uh, after all, they were, it was also suggested when we were uh, last time we talked that the island uh, could become a single epidemiological zone uh, regarding cattle, sheep, and fresh food. And now right. we're talking about people as well. Right. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind is that um, the British really don't care about Ireland at all. Um, and, and that includes the North. So historically, of course, it was colonized. It was really import, an important uh, strategic place for the British um, you know, had, had strategic position in the Atlantic Ocean for an empire that then, con- you know, whose navy then conquered the world. Um, it was strategic. It was um, also uh, part of their uh, whole system of basically raping a place for, for, for raw goods and, and um, using it uh, for the rest of their uh, colonization exploits throughout the world and so forth. But they, you know, in recent years, England. Well, Britain does, has, not, has no news, use for Ireland at all. Um, and that includes the North. The, 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 the one thing keeping the northern six counties under British jurisdiction is that population of Northern Ireland 
the Protestant British-identified Loyalist Unionist population, which is very conservative, but also really obsessed with being British in a kind of uh, supremacist way, um, living in kind of an era that's uh, long gone for most people in England. Um, you know, that, that kind of British exceptionalism, although we've seen it resurge with Brexit. And, um, and, but, but for the most part, you know, Britain and Boris, they don't really have a lot of use for Ireland. So um, Latishik and Boris agreeing that Ireland is a single epi- epidemiological unit um, doesn't surprise me. Usually what happens is that the northern Irish Protestant Unionist Loyalist population will sometimes raise hell on such things, and the Tories and, and the Tories will have to respond to that. Um, there are Tories who do believe in the Union, you know, the precious Union, and holding on to Northern Ireland as part of that, because they also would be afraid of a domino effect. Um, they probably have more to worry about from Scotland these days, I think, in terms of breaking off from the United Kingdom. But there are Tories that, that do care about keeping Northern Ireland within uh, the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, but for the most part, it doesn't have a lot of economic benefit for them. Um, if anything, they you know they would probably like to get rid of the you know the um, the dole that they have to pay and so forth um, there. But they often treat um, Ireland and especially the North, which is under their jurisdiction, as kind of an afterthought. So, in a way, if if the Taoiseach, if Leo Varadkar called Boris and talked about how this needs to be responded to. As a, as a unified island, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if anything he, he was probably reminding Boris that Northern Ireland is actually part of the UK. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me that Boris would go along with that. The bigger problem is when the Protestant uh, British identified Loyalist Unionist population of Northern Ireland in cahoots with some of their Tory friends um, that do care about maintaining the North as part of the United Kingdom. Um, the bigger problem is that population uh, stirring things up. Um, and and, and that we, we see that happening even now because there's a lot of resistance to, even in talking about the reopening, there's a lot of resistance to a unified island-wide approach coming from the, the uh, Protestant Unionist Loyalist population in the North. Um, it seems to have hardened other like, attitudes as well. For example, abortion law reform was officially scheduled to arrive in Northern Ireland on April 1st, but it's been delayed. And the mm-hmm. uh, coronavirus crisis, uh, the, the lockdown, the widespread pressure on health services are being blamed for the delay. Uh, right. But uh, but uh, I'm getting the feeling that politics uh, really may be the, 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 the real cause. Yeah, and, and some of it's just um, wanting to be uh, just wanting to resist any anything that is Irish um, or uh, seen as too progressive. Um, and I, you know, and abortion reform is now seen as, as Irish because the Catholic yeah. Republic of, of Ireland has now eased its abortion, has reformed its abortion laws. Yeah, I mean, wow, how things have changed, right? Like the last thing we would have thought 10 years ago is that abortion would someday be seen as Irish, you know? <laughs> but, uh, you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it was so Catholic church controlled for so many years. But, um, but yeah, they, it's almost like a resistance to anything coming from Dublin at all. And, um, and, and that's to their own detriment because there are working class Protestant unionist loyalist populations that are uh, detrimentally impacted by 
um, a lot of these uh, right-wing policies, especially, um, you know, austerity-type policies and so forth. Another thing just to remind everyone to keep in mind is that the – and I, I say all the identifications all the time just to – because they're not all the same thing, but there's the – we know this population as the Protestants of Northern Ireland um, – that's kind of an oversimplification. They're unionists, meaning they're in favor of union with the United Kingdom, but they're loyalists, meaning loyal to the crown. So the Protestant unionist loyalist population is also, um, you know, other than the young people, maybe, it's a very evangelical, conservative version of Protestantism, um, way more conservative than even, you know, than a lot of um, people who identify as Catholic, who may or may not go to church or, you know, might consider themselves culturally Catholic. Catholic might just mean of the native Irish um, population to some of them and so forth. Um, but, you know, a lot of the kind of Catholicism in Ireland that really exists would be much more culturally Catholic now, whereas the Protestantism of the North, at least for a population of, of a, people of a certain age and up, um, would be very evangelical and I would say right wing. Um, so just a reminder of that as well. So all of this goes in, but it's but but I swear that I I believe that the a lot of the resistance is about kind of resistance to being um, absorbed by the culture by the by the Irish culture, and that comes from a historic obsession with being a, a, a superior people in line with you know as as British identified people, and You're the listening. Irish being inferior. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Faith sometimes steps in, robs us of what we have.
great gospel singer Marion Williams with a song whose lyric gives us a little bit of hope for uh, what will happen in the near future. This too shall pass. Before we get back to my conversation with Michael Patrick McDonald, uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI at what is a very precarious time for a small listener-supported station like ours. The situation is clearly quite desperate in Ireland and the UK, but as we all know, we have our own severe challenges right here at home, and that's why we're asking our listeners, you, to step up right now and go to our website, uh, give to wbai.org. That's give, the number two, wbai.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep WBAI and let it locate at large online. Um, the... Uh, we are right now, not just BAI, but um, many nonprofits are going through a rough time. But uh, since we work on such tight margins, it's particularly dangerous for us right now. And we really hope that you'll come through. Be, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Let It Locate at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. Uh, we're back with Michael Patrick McDonald. Um, he is our regular correspondent covering issues that relate to England and, uh, and Ireland and Brexit. And, uh, and now we're talking about the impact of the coronavirus. Uh, Michael, in talk about all of this, we should talk about health care. I've always assumed that health care in the UK was all covered by the National Health Service. But don't Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland all have their own systems? Yes, they do have a. A national health system, meaning that um, that there's free, you know, that that it's free, basically. Um, uh, but there, um, you know, there's there's allowance for within the United Kingdom. There's allowance for um, those countries to kind of have some local administration of things. But it's essentially, you know, it's a national health service, um, essentially. And I actually got to experience it when I was I was living over there last year doing uh, the Fulbright at, in Belfast. 
But my mother came to visit, and she's 85, and um, and while visiting, she had a heart attack, and it was just the most, um, compared to anything here uh, I've ever witnessed, the most incredible experience. It was a very positive experience, humane experience, just in terms of the, the kind of dedication of the, I mean, well, they, they were just, I mean, her life, she's 85, but and, and they really prioritized her, never asked her how, how she's going to pay for it. Um, that wasn't part of the question. Someone was dying and they saved them. Um, she's fine. And, but it was just really interesting to, I always say, to witness the Hippocratic Oath in action. And that's just the people. Now it's an underfunded system and that's a problem that's um, coming to light right now. And that's something that has to be dealt with, you know, like a lot of social justice issues we're talking about that have to be dealt with. Um, when we get through this, or as we're going through it, in a lot of cases, the really urgent stuff. Over there, people are talking about um, that stuff as well. And and over there, it would be in the north, anyways, because the north has a national health system. The south does not. The south is more privatized, like us. Um, and and that's and, and terrible, actually, you know, and and um, really terrible system. But the north, uh, which has a national health health service is underfunded and that's something that people are talking about they've had the lack of preparedness as well with the um the lack of ppe you know nurses having to reuse gowns and and masks and so forth also in the case of the north of ireland early on in the covid crisis um uh, a whole bunch of equipment was shipped over to london Uh, stuff that had actually been produced in northern ireland um was being taken away because as i've said before um, Northern Ireland, Ireland and Northern Ireland are just kind of an afterthought when, when it comes to London. Um, but yeah, they do have a national health service. It's, it's free. It's terribly underfunded. Nurses have been um, uh, picketing um, over the past year. There's been a, a big movement of nurses um, calling, for, uh, calling for better conditions, basically for their patients. Um, they, they don't feel like they're living in that they're working in conditions that, that are, and this is way before COVID, they don't feel like um, the services that they can offer are adequate for you know the amount of life-saving that they have to do. Um, so that's been a big issue up there. In the South, the big issue is that it's um, a terribly um, privatized system, expensive, as well as just not really good care. There's reports all the time of, people waiting on trolleys and hallways um, forever to be seen. And and so, and that's all part of kind of the Leo Varadka, um neoliberal economic uh, world that we've seen. But with the COVID crisis, what they had to do immediately, and fair play to them for acting immediately on this, is essentially nationalize the hospital system in the, in the south of Ireland. Now, um, Although the prime minister says this is not the nationalization of hospitals. This is a public-private partnership expanding our right. public health service right. in response to the emergency, but also cooperation with the private sector. He he wants he wants to uh, ease the minds of people who might worry that there would be. Why is there resistance to nationalization? Don't uh, people in the South see what the the North, even despite its its own problems, uh, probably has a better system? I think they do. And I think that's why, um, you know, before all this happened, last time I was on your show, we were talking about the elections and Sinn Féin won the election. Fine Gael, the conservative, economically conservative party, 
of Leo Varadka lost. They came in third. And um, they, um, I think they, yeah, they, so the, there's three parties, basically, three leading parties. Sinn Féin came in first, and then the, the second and third were uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Um, one is kind of, one is more conservative than the other, but they're both pretty conservative, neoliberal economics uh, and so forth. Um, but they uh, they lost. And um, I think that he's uh, making sure that um, his, well, I guess he's just telling the party line and he doesn't want to commit to a nationalized system. The elections, um, the elections, and the elections Sinn Féin won, but a government had not been formed yet when the COVID crisis hit. And of course, the government ha- over there, um, just like the British system, um, if you know you form a government in coalition with other parties in order to have a, a clear majority, and uh, no such thing had happened because uh, Sinn Fein, well, neither of those parties uh, would go anywhere near Sinn Fein. Um, Sinn Fein, with the smaller uh, progressive parties of Labour and Greens and so forth could not form a majority. So things were kind of up in the air, even though they won the election. Um, uh, they could not form a majority. Things were up in the air. Then the COVID crisis hit. So everything's on hold. Um, and Leo Varadkar's the Taoiseach, uh, also called the prime minister sometimes. But um, And he is uh, he has been doing a lot of things that might be considered uh, socialist, I guess, right? But he's very clear and the language to make sure that they're not committing to anything like this long term. Um, and that would be to his detriment. I think that, you know, one of the, one of the worries, I think that um, people who want to see Sinn Féin in power, a lot of, one of the worries they might have is if um, Senegal and Leo Varadka just basically became Sinn Féin on a lot of these issues. The biggest issues that made Sinn Féin win the election were, um, was the healthcare system really, and uh, and housing? So healthcare and housing, huge homeless pop, um, problem in in Dublin and throughout Ireland, but especially in Dublin, as a result of you know austerity and neoliberal policy. Uh, Sinn Fein won uh, because of housing and health, and uh, I would see that they they could be afraid that Leo Varadkar and Gale just take on a lot of those policies in the midst of this crisis, but. He's being really clear that these are not long-term uh, changes he's he's willing to commit to. So, but in the meantime, what I don't know is how you how you essentially basically healthcare is there and free for anyone who needs it um, at the moment. And um, I don't I don't know how you you take that away from people again. I mean, um, you know, so so they'll have a problem doing that. You know, I think once people. People are already in favor of national health in the south of Ireland. Um, when they get a little bit of a taste of it and also um, are in the midst of a health crisis like like one we haven't experienced, they're, they're going to be really calling for national health after this. So um, we don't know who will be the, the Taoiseach in Ireland after all of this, um, but uh, whoever it is, it is whoever can form a government. I think is going to be someone who um, will put health and housing front and center because you know the housing crisis has also exacerbated the COVID crisis there, as you can imagine, and and places um, you know shelters and, and places like that, of course, um, we can have it right now. So, like here. 
Dr. Gabriel Scali, president of epidemiology and public health section at the Royal Society of Medicine, that's in England, has pointed out that having two regimes on the island is pointless. And he says, unless we want a hard second wave, we need a concerted effort to align the two jurisdictions, medical and societal responses. So there are people in England who are talking about uh, the, yep. the the country be at least merging many services. Yes, the absolutely. two countries. Um, yes, and you know, and the, I, I, he by his quote, I would guess that he might, you know, be a pretty progressive guy. And you know, there's always been in England, there have always been um, a, people more to the left that support Ireland's calls for independence, and and also were very critical of. Um, British military response in the north of Ireland and the massacres of Bloody Sunday and Bally Murphy and so forth, um, and the oppression that, that existed in Northern Ireland and, the, and especially in the prisons uh, during the hunger strikes um, of 1981, Bobby Sands and, and the 10 men who died during those hunger strikes. There were a lot of, a lot of people in England that would, would have supported um, Irish freedom and Irish equality and, and so forth, uh, or Catholic equality in the north. So I would assume he might be of that population, and um, and but what's new, I think, is that there are uh, conservative-leaning people in England who uh, are just don't probably because they don't care about the place and they don't they don't see a lot of economic benefit um, to holding on to the north of Ireland. Um, so um, I think that there's not a lot of will in the. Um, in the UK, you know, coming from London, there's not a lot of will for uh, maintaining the border in Ireland and holding on to Northern Ireland. Where there is will is among the uh, British-identified Protestant Unionist loyalist population in the north, which makes up 50% of the, of the six-county population of what's called Northern Ireland. So they're about half of the population there. Although what's changing there, too, uh, is that... Um, and this was something that I saw when I was over there and for a year and the conversations were all about Brexit and Brexit posing the possibility of a, of a United Ireland. I would be in a taxi with, you know, working class, unionist, loyalist uh, person who um, would often express a, a kind of a, well, that, that at least that they're not afraid of a United Ireland. And that was a huge that was a huge change from 10, especially 20 years ago. But, and some who were in favor of the United Ireland just because it makes more sense. I mean, in terms of uh, policy, even before COVID, just in terms, even if you're conservative economically, you would, it makes more sense to have a United Ireland. Um, and so that population is also changing slowly, but most of their leaders are really, really, um, you know, are, are, are vitriolic, demagogic, and so forth. And um, a lot of people that express, you know, a lot of people in communities would express kind of progressive opinions in the Protestant Unionist Loyalist communities, but then still vote for um, the, um, the very conservative DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, so in the, in, in the North, there's also the young population of Protestant, uh, people of Protestant background, Unionist background, Loyalist background, young people who um, are kind of outward looking, right? Being young and, and, and wanting to be part of the world um, 
who were really put off by Brexit and who also um, might be opening up in terms of United Ireland, certainly opening up in, around the fact that um, the Republic south of the border has more progressive policy around marriage equality um, and choice. Uh, so they see, you know, young, a young Protestant unionist loyalist background person in the north of Ireland who might be outward looking um, is looking across that border and seeing that, um, well, not only is it part of Europe, which a lot of young people like to be part of, um, to be able to go work in France and so forth, uh, but it's also got more progressive policies that, that young people would lean toward. Um, so things are changing, and um, but it's it's interesting. It's an increasing minority, this, this really kind of uh, evangelical right-wing population that keeps, a whole, keeps the place part of the United Kingdom. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, I think, everywhere these days to look at how powerful um, relatively sm- relative minorities can be in, in terms of, you know, like even here, like, uh, uh, you know, looking at, I mean, well, the fact that Trump didn't win the popular vote and so forth. So um, uh, things are gerrymandered over there as well in a lot of, in a lot of cases, and, and that allows for... Um, for certain populations to keep a stranglehold on the place. Michael, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much, as always. Sure. Uh, Michael Patrick McDonald is a special correspondent on our show. He, you can read his books, look them up. Uh, perhaps the most famous are the American Book Award-winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, but also Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. And Michael, we'll see you soon. See you soon. One more thing, the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, my favorite thing that he said in his address today, he, he used the term a just transition when he talked about reopening. And that is on my mind all day here as well as there. Just the concept of a just transition. And that's something that we're because with so much we're going to have to look at everywhere in the aftermath of this. So thank you for having me. Oh, and let's go into a transition. That brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out our show page on Facebook and Twitter. Also, you can visit Leonard Lopate at Large, our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me your comments on any of our shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate.com at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go to give to WBAI.org. That's give, and then the number two, WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Uh, one way to help, well, and by the way, right now we're offering, have a special uh, offer, a premium. Uh, if you become a member for $35, uh, go to our website, that, that uh, w, give to WBAI.org. You can see uh, a number of face masks that we're offering for $35 memberships. But uh, another very important way to help us is to become a sustaining member, or what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, you... Uh, BAI buddies are station members who spread their support out over the course of a year 
through a monthly contribution of $10, $15, $20, or any amount they feel comfortable with. And it, it continues until you tell us uh, no more. You, you, you don't want to do it anymore if you, if you want to end your BA, BAI buddyship. But uh, it's really important to us because it means that we know that uh, we will have money coming in next year or next month, the month after, the month after that. We won't have, just have to go from hand to mouth every month. So please consider doing that. Remember, uh, if you did it for $10, uh, that's $120 a year, $10 a month. Um, most people can afford that. Um, we hope that you uh, will uh, do that again. Our number of 516-620-3602. The important thing is uh, to keep this station and all, all the things we do here going. Uh, and we can only do it with your help because we don't take money from foundations or we don't run ads as some uh, other public broadcasters do. Uh, we hope you'll tune in tomorrow when our favorite home repair experts, Alvin and Lawrence Schubel, will discuss the way that COVID-19 is affecting the construction industry and small businesses and, um, and what people want to do in their homes. Uh, this may be a very good time to, to do a little bit of that home repair that you've been putting off. And they're just the, the uh, experts to consult and we'll be taking your calls. Um, I hope to see you then.